Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to read briefly from the very end of the Bible here. Revelation 21. I'm going to begin in verse 22. And I'm going to go through chapter 22, verse 5. So 21, 22 through 22, 5. This will provide a little context for our sermon passage, which is from Psalm 56, our Psalm of the Month. But first, Revelation 21, beginning in verse 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall be, there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. Amen. John is alone on the island of Patmos in the Lord's day. And he's full of the spirit. And he looks out and here at the end of all his visions. He sees a city. Now, we know something about a city, but the city he sees is not quite like the city we see. How many of you have walked the sidewalks of downtown Boston? Steel and glass canyons rising up. And what are the two things, three things that mark those sidewalks? No sunlight, no green vegetation, and no water unless it's the puddle that you're going to get splashed with when the car goes by. Right? And yet, John in his vision sees a big, beautiful city, and it is marked by three things. Bright light, fresh water, and a giant tree. A tree of life, water of life, and the light of life. Here in the heart of the city are three visual images, three metaphors which communicate to us the abundance of life, the everlasting nature of life. And all of them are used throughout Scripture as metaphors for Jesus. This is not surprising that when John gets to the end of his vision, which he says in chapter 1 is a revelation of Jesus Christ, he should see once and for all the great and full glorious picture of heaven, and three times he sees Jesus. What illumines heaven? It is Christ. What gives 
life to heaven, it is Christ. And with this in mind, turn back to our Psalm of the Month, Psalm 56. Our Psalm of the Month is Psalm 56. I would have preached it last week, but I was in Providence and Daniel House here, so I'm preaching it this week. Psalm 56. Hear again the word of the Lord. To the chief musician set to the silent dove in distant lands, a mikthom of David when the Philistines captured him in Gath. Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day he oppresses me, my enemies would hound me all day. For there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? All day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together. They hide. They mark my steps. And when they lie and wait for my life. Shall they escape by iniquity? In anger... Cast down the peoples, O God. You number my wanderings. Put my tears into your body. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. In God I will praise his word. In the Lord I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling? That I may walk before God in the light of the living? Amen. And amen. Several of the longtime residents of this street, Antrim Street, have taken very seriously their responsibility to maintain the agriculture of this area. So, for instance, in the 1880s, if you showed up here for worship, there would be cows, because this was the last pasture of Cambridge. It was settled in the 1880s and turned into houses. But at several key points along this street, there are yards and gardens in which you can find the pasture-like crops or flowers, really, shrubs, trees, that the birds of this area love best. And if you are here, which very few of you are, at sunrise, on any given day in the spring, you will find that the dawn is serenaded into its zenith by all those birds. Just this morning, I was sitting in my green chair in the living room thinking about how to begin this sermon when I realized that there was all these chirps and cheeps and chickadees and robins and finches and martins, and I'm getting out of my depth here, Um, lots of birds that I don't know their name. And they're all making these beautiful sounds, and it's so full of song. And then 
I heard the one bird I do know. It is unmistakable. The long, low moan of the pigeon. The morning dove. There in some far-off tree making its soft groan. And then trailing off. David begins our psalm by saying, Have you ever heard a dove? Have you ever heard a dove in a far-off tree? See that in the subtitle? Your translators try to tell you it's the name of a musical tune. They invented that idea. It's actually David talking about the state of his soul. That he was moaning in some far-off tree like a dove. Greeting the dawn with all of the deep agony of his heart. You see, David has fled from King Saul. Out of the land of Israel, he has felt so acutely the peril and the danger of living with Saul in his palace that David has sought refuge in that most hospitable of Philistine cities, Gath. You know, where Goliath is from. David feels so in danger in Israel that he goes to Goliath's hometown to seek shelter. Not surprisingly, they don't welcome him. Not surprisingly, he finds that Gath is no more safe than Israel, which leaves David in the precarious position of being homeless. Do you guys know what the current number of refugees the world over is? Neither do I, but it's very high. We are living in an age of homelessness. Have you guys ever walked the streets of Cambridge? One of the highest per capita income areas in the country. One of the most expensive real estate markets in the country. And do you know what we have living outside of our public library 24-7, 365? At least two homeless people. Often more. We live in an age of homelessness. How many of you were born and raised within three or four miles of this building? There's not many of us. I know there's some of us. Friends, we live in an age of homelessness. We live in an age where we don't feel safe in the world. And this is a psalm for us. This is a psalm for us who look at the world and say, this is increasingly not the world I wanted it to be. This is not the space that I thought it would be. And so David, recognizing he is not welcome at home in Israel, he is not welcome afar in Philistia, he has nowhere he can go. His next stop is actually the wilderness of Judah, literally nowhere. He has nowhere he can be. And so he gives this psalm to the chief musician. This is a song that belongs to the choir of Christ who in singing this with Jesus learn how to answer the homelessness of this world. Who learn how to deal with our sense of alienation from the world that is around us where nowhere feels safe and nowhere feels like home. When you feel like a silent dove in distant land, this is a psalm for you. David in verses 1 and 2 says that this condition, this 
feeling of homelessness, this sense of alienation in this world, comes from the fact that he is oppressed by those who hunt him, those who seek to swallow him up and who fight against him. The multitude of enemies that he speaks of are on the one hand Saul and the Israelites, on the other hand the king of Gath and the Philistines. He speaks of their oppression, their attempt to swallow him, their desire to fight against him. It is in this place of futility that David expresses these words. Be merciful to me, O God. Notice how David responds to the fact that no one in the human race seems friendly to him. That no one out of all the humanity around him seems to welcome him. Homeless and unwelcome in the world, David turns to God and says, Be merciful to me, O God. Silent as a dove in the court of Saul. Insane as a silly pigeon in the court of Gath. He is welcome and he is vocal in the court of God. Though he can say nothing to Saul, he simply runs away. Though he can say nothing to the king of Gath, he simply plays insane and runs away. David, nevertheless, in verse 1, faces the king and head of the universe, God himself, and he opens his mouth. Silenced in all the courtrooms of humanity, he finds a place to speak in the courtroom of God. Let me apply it this way. What are you doing tonight? 6 p.m. on Zoom. You guys have heard my speech. I do this periodically. Because, my friends, heaven is open and we can pray. We can talk to the king of the universe. How many of you have visited the White House? Have you ever tried to get through the gate? They shoot you. Have you ever tried to knock on the door? In the days of Abraham Lincoln, you could actually do that. You could actually walk through the sheep who mowed the front lawn, and you could actually knock on the door and ask to see him. It might be a long wait, but you could do it. We don't do that anymore. It's guarded with barbed wire and men with guns and body armor. Not so heaven. No, heaven is open. In fact, in Psalm 24, when Jesus ascended up into heaven victorious, they told them to rip the doors off the hinges to make more room for the king of glory. Heaven is open. My friends, when this world feels homeless, look up. Heaven is open. When this world feels unwelcoming, look to God. He welcomes All who come to me, says Christ, I will cast out none. None. Come and pray. Be merciful to me, O God. David, having turned from this world in which he finds no welcome, having turned from the homes of kings in which he finds no safety, and looking into the heavens, he sees the face of God, cries out for mercy, and finds his heart is put at ease. In verse 3, he says, whenever I am afraid, I trust in you. In God, he says twice, in God I have put my trust. In God I will praise his word. I will not fear what can flesh do to me. 
In this mini poem embedded here in the psalm, which will be repeated down in verse 11, 10 and 11, David is training us in the first place to find the doorway to heaven that is open wide to us. He says in verse 4, it is in his word. What is it that has awakened trust in God in the heart of David? I will praise his word, says David. The Bible is the doorway into heaven for David. It is where he finds heaven standing open to him. That at any moment when his heart is troubled and filled with fear, he can silence those fears by letting the Bible speak. When he lets the scriptures speak to his soul, his soul no longer listens to that rush and torrent of fear and despair. You know of what I speak, right? Where you're alone, and you are troubled, and your mind begins to play with your to-do list that is far from being done. When your mind begins to play with all the scenarios of everything that could possibly go wrong with this situation, and all at once your heart is burdened and borne down by the weight of the world, And David says, no, stop. Stop listening to the world. Stop listening to your own fears. Silence them all with the word of God. Instead, praise the promises of God. In context, I think David has in mind not simply the broad scope of the word of God, which for him would have been the Mosaic revelation, But also, I think David has in mind more particularly that anointing promise that Samuel had given him the day that the oil descended upon him in the house of his father, Jesse, 1 Samuel 16. God had promised David that he would be king over Israel. And let me tell you, pretending that you are insane in the palace of the king of Gath is about as far from being king of Israel as you can imagine being. David is living in a moment in which it looks like the promise of God is anything but true. David is living in a moment where it appears that the promise of God is about as far from being realized as anyone could imagine. Have you ever had that day? Where you wake up, you look in the mirror, and you go, I am as bad unsanctified as I have ever been. I am about as selfish and sinful as I have ever been. I seem about as far from glory as I have ever been. This is where David is. He's not in Israel, let alone ruling over Israel. He's not a king. He's a puppet on the run from one king, powerless in the hand of another king. There is nothing royal about David in this episode. There is nothing in his experience, nothing in his world, nothing in his heart that suggests that this promise is even remotely true. And yet David says... I praise your word. And yet I go back to the promise of God. And I am inflated with hope. I have confidence that when I am afraid, I can trust in you. He roots himself in the promise of God. This resting in the promise of God strengthens David then to face his enemies. His enemies who beginning in verse 5, he describes as seeking every possible way to destroy him. First, they spend all day twisting his words. 
They take what he has said and they use them against him, turning his truths into lies, turning his hopes into fears. Their thoughts are against him. Not only are they using his words to harm him, they're using their thoughts. They plot and they scheme. They gather together. They don't work in isolation. They add strength to one another, building an unholy alliance of opposition. They hide. They don't expose themselves openly, but they hide. They mark his steps. They stalk him like a predator seeking prey. They lie in wait for his life like a wild animal, sharp with fang, fierce with appetite, ready to pounce and to destroy David. And he cries out, shall they escape by iniquity? Shall they overcome because they are able to sin? Is sin a way of escape? Is is this what I'm to learn from this? So David cries out again and at last, in anger, casts down the people's Oh God, notice the parallel. This prayer of David in anger cast down the peoples, O God, is set in parallel with verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God. David on the one hand prays, be merciful to me, O God. And on the other hand prays, be angry with them, O God. For David, the salvation of God and the justice of God are not separate or even oppositional realities. For David to receive mercy, his enemies must receive anger from God. God must simultaneously express his justice and his goodness. How are we to reconcile this? How is the psalm to be brought together into this experience that the silent dove in distant lands, finding among humans no hope of salvation, nevertheless finds in God the twin salvation, mercy for him and anger for his enemies? Not surprisingly, we find it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what John chapter 1 says about Jesus? That when he came to his own, his own did not receive him. If you think David knew what it's like to live between two worlds and to be welcome in neither one, consider this. He was never hung on a cross, unwelcome on earth or in heaven. Jesus is the true reality of Psalm 56. Jesus is the one who knows what it's like to be abandoned by 11 of his disciples, betrayed by the 12th, tried by his own chief priests and elders in order to be turned over to the Romans and crucified. If anyone knows what it's like to be alone in the world and unloved by all humanity, it is Christ. And yet, like David, who in that hour of loneliness, in the wilderness of humanity, unwelcomed and homeless among all, praying, God be merciful to me, God cast down the peoples, Jesus likewise begins and ends his crucifixion with prayer. He begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He ends with, my God, my God, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
The lesson is borne out in both the experience of David and of Jesus. It is God with whom we have to deal. If we are to survive the sorrows of this life, my friends, then we must learn to walk with God through this world. Talking to Him, praying to Him, calling upon Him for mercy and for justice. If there is to be justice in this world, it must be God who does it. Just as if there is to be grace in this world, it must be God who does it. Our hope rests in the action and activity of God. Let me put it this way. We shouldn't believe in the power of prayer. We should believe in the power of the God who hears prayer. Let us pray Not because the exercise is simply beneficial and good. But let us pray because God loves prayer and he hears and answers prayer. Notice God hears and answers prayer because he is attentive. Far more attentive than we are. In verse 8, David gives three metaphors for the affectionate attention of God. You number my wanderings. You bottle my tears, you record them in your book. Speaking first of an accounting image, David says, You have numbered my wanderings. You you have kept a travel log of where I've been and of all my sorrows. You've upheld the memory of all that I have experienced. You've also preserved souvenirs. My tears are in your bottle. The Puritans were fond of saying, You will not cry one tear more than is absolutely necessary. We do not suffer needlessly. 1 Peter 1, he says, you suffer a little while if necessary. He bottles our tears. He numbers our wanderings. He sits in heaven with his wonderful ledger. And there he records in his book all the trials and the travails of our hearts. Though all this world would silence us, we cannot sing praise. Though all this world would silence us, we cannot scream and shout. Within us, bottle up all these emotions, and our Father in heaven has the carbon copy. He knows exactly what is going on in our minds and in our hearts. He knows the angst and the anxiety within. He is not ignorant. So David concludes in verse 9. When I cry out, then my enemies turn back. My prayer drives back my foes. Isn't this stunning? David expresses this great confidence in one powerless act. David, this oppressed and fleeing victim, this homeless man on the run from Saul and from Gath, says, this I know, the Philistine kingdom will fall, and Saul and all of his royal house will fall, and in their wake I shall remain the anointed king. How does David know this? This I know, because God is for me. This I know, God is for me. Do you remember how... Paul finishes this sentence in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? What is it to be homeless in the house of Saul? 
What is it to be unwelcome in the house of Gath? What is it to be Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world? As it has often been noted, one against the world with God is a majority. Indeed, my friends, David says, I know God and I know his promise. I know he is for me. And if he is for me, no one can stand against me. I know that he delights in me. I know his word. And so he returns to this refrain, verses 10 and 11. In God, I will praise his word. In the Lord, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? David concludes, I will worship him. I will worship him for his promise because I know who he is. His promise is yea and amen in Christ Jesus, says the Apostle Paul. What happens when the providence of God seems to contradict the promise of God? What happens when everything you see, everything you feel, everything you experience seems to move against everything the scriptures seem to tell you? You are forced into that desperate moment of faith in which God whispers to you softly, my dear child, are you going to believe what you see or what I tell you? This is often what faith comes down to in our darkest days and our longest nights. Are you going to believe what you see? Or are you going to believe what he's told you? Will you praise his promises? Will you rejoice in his word? Will you hope when there seems no hope, no way of escape, when all this world seems hopeless? Will you worship this God? David then ends in verses 12 and 13. O God, your vows are binding upon me. I will render praises to you. He says, I will worship. I will come and I will worship God. You heard some vows this morning. In fact, you took one. We made promises, did we not? The Colmans made promises, did they not? But it's not quite like these promises. These vows are different. These vows that are binding upon God are vows which David made in his trouble in which he said, I will come and worship God. When he delivers me, I will be restored to the worship of God. And when I am restored, there I will give him thanks and praise. I will dedicate my life to worshiping God. You know, now that I say it out loud, it's not all that different than those promises, is it? Isn't that exactly what was vowed this morning? I promise to dedicate my parenting to the worship of God. I promise to discipline in a way that worships God. I promise to train and educate, feed and clothe in a way that worships God. David learns through this homelessness that his true home is in God. That his true welcome is in worship. That rendering praise to God is indeed the chief and highest end of his existence in his humanity. So in verse 13, Ah, you have delivered my soul from death, my feet from falling. That is, falling into the grave. You have kept my feet from being snared by Saul. You have kept my feet from being snared by the king of Gath. 
that I may walk before God in the light of the living. David speaks here of some extraordinary turns of event. Do you know how the story ends with Saul? Saul dies on Mount Gilboa at the hands of the Philistines of Gath. Because Jesus is a great king. Do you know who was in the service of the king of Gath just before the battle on Mount Gilboa? David. Who is then released from battle because the other Philistines don't trust him. He goes home to Ziklag. Because you know who's a great king? Jesus. We look at the life of David and we say, what happens when you live between these persecuting powers? The prince of the church and the prince of the world. What happens when you find no welcome in any human society and you think, where shall I go? What shall I do? Where shall I live? David says, live with God. Walk before him in the light of the living. What happens on that day when death comes knocking, darkness threatens to silence your voice forever, close your eyes in the depths of death forever? David says, remember that in Christ you will walk in the light of the living. What is in heaven according to Revelation 21 and 22? Light. The light of the living. The light of life and the life that is in the light. The things that we saw in Revelation 21 and 22 are embedded in the heart of David as his hope. That he, throughout all his life, may walk before God. That is, in his presence, under his authority and for his glory. He may indeed have fellowship and friendship with God that is untainted and undiminished by all the sufferings of this life. All the slings and arrows, as Shakespeare would say it. All the death, all the disease. Indeed, even the grave itself cannot stop David from walking with God in the light of life. This is extraordinary. One, it points us back to Adam, who in the garden walked with God in the cool of the day. Two, it points us back to Samuel. That day when in 1 Samuel when David was on the run. It's an amazingly wonderful story. Do you know how Samuel... Uh, Samuel... He's the author. You know how David gets out of the city of Gath? He walks. He just walks away. Because he is walking before God in the light of the living. Do you remember what Jesus does on Resurrection Sunday? You know the first one? On the road to Emmaus? He walks with his disciples. And he shows them the light of all the scriptures. How the Psalms and the prophets speak of him. My friends, we are homeless in this world. But we are at home with God. Because we have Christ. My friends, Jesus is your true home. Jesus is the door to heaven. The warm welcome of a loving father. The one who has walked through the shadow of death before you and beside you. 
Jesus is the light of the living in whom you must walk. And you will never stumble nor fall. Beloved, this is the hope of Psalm 56. That we who walk with Jesus will never stumble nor fall. Jesus is the light of the living. Walk with him. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for the beautiful exhibition of grace which we have beheld in the prayers we have offered, in the word that has been read, in the baptism that has been administered. Beyond all this, O God, we give you thanks for Jesus himself, of whom we have heard, who guides our hearts through the valley of the shadow of death, and who leads us to everlasting life. Please write this psalm upon our hearts. Please bind it to our minds, that we might run in its ways, that we might keep its commands that we might know our Jesus and rejoice in him. We pray, O God, that you would indeed bind up to us the things we have heard, that we might hear and obey with all joy and rejoicing. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.